The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Well, church, I hope you were doing well this morning. Um, I'm honestly, I'm really excited about where we're going to be uh, today, but in all honesty, I'm a little bit daunted as well, and uh, what I mean is, is when I've been looking at this text, this is a really powerful and really straightforward text. The very last thing that I want to do is not do it justice, and the more I read it, and the more I read it, the more I realize how important and crucial this is for the church, and my prayer is that I do this one faithfully. Um, And so what I'd love to do is um, I want to pause, and I want us to read the text together, and then we can can pray um, that God would just help me to do this one justice. I mean that. As you read it, you'll probably feel that. One uh, little note of clarification, our uh, screens uh, this, there was a play here all week. It was awesome. It was, they used all this stuff though. And so we got this little upgrade back here, but that means I'm probably going to be standing right in front of the screen for some of you. I cannot move. So I'm just going to have to pretend like you can see all of it. We, we did our best. All right. But as we put it up here, I might be blocking some of you, but it's in your Bible. So if you want to just open with me, uh, first Timothy six, you can, it's all right there. I promise. First uh, Timothy 6, are, we're going to be in two verses, 11 and 12, says this, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good profession in the presence of many witnesses. Let's pray together, and we'll get to work. Lord, um, we come to a text like this that is just so full and and so vital, and it's like, because it is written directly for us as the church. And so I just pray that in this time that you would give us the ears to hear, the ability to take your word and to apply it faithfully in our lives. God, um, on a very personal note, I just pray that you would help me to faithfully proclaim your word. As much as I can to do this justice, knowing I, would no, I will never do it justice. And, and that's why right here, right now, I pray that your spirit does the work that I could never do. Would you open our eyes? And would you work and move through your word in the name of Jesus? Amen. Amen. All right. Um, as you probably could tell, Paul wastes no time in this text. It's just... It's direct to the point, and he gives instructions, and I just want to, what the goal will be this, this morning is just to walk through it little by little, uh, these two verses. And so it starts right at the beginning with this contrast, um, this word, uh, but as for you. And, and what this does is it causes us to look backwards to what came, came before. There's a contrast here. And not only are we to look back, but it's a contrast, meaning we need to contrast what came earlier in this, in this text. But, so what is Paul contrasting? 
Well, as we look at this, he's pointing back to what came before. In this context, to the false teachers. Uh, Let me just walk through this. If you have your Bible, you can see this just as we walk through it. But in verse 3, he's contrasting those who have begun teaching and living a different doctrine. Um, going against the sound words of Jesus and teachings and going against godliness, going into pride. Um, Or like those in verse four who had this weird and unhealthy craving um, for division and controversy and quarrels. Or who, like in verse five, have found a way to turn all of this into a gain for themselves. Speaking of gain, Like those in verse 9, who are not content, who have given themselves over to the pursuit of riches, who have fallen into that snare and ruin and pursue money, the love of money above all else, and have just pursued wholeheartedly after that life. That's who Paul's pointing back to. He points back to that, to them, and says, but as for you. It's a contrast. Meaning, as for you, you're going to be different. You're not going to be like that. You are going to be different. This simple but word that starts our text is right off the bat should ask us, is there that contrast? But as for you, do we see that contrast in the world? When we look at the world around us and we examine our lives, are we able to say, but as for me? where this text starts us. But as for you, as for me. And who is the you here? Well, as we look, we see it's the man of God. And I'll, I'll expand on this. The word here for man, I will add woman of God well, as well. This word can be used as an adult man, a boy. Uh, but it's also the word that we get for just human, person. It's the person of God. And in this context, Um, we have every reason to look at this and to see it that way. And it should drive us right off the bat to ask ourselves, is there a contrast here between the man or woman of God and the man or woman of the world? Is there a but as for me contrast between these two things? Church, there should be. There should be, as for me. And, and what should that distinction be? Well, that's what our text is going to do um, this morning. Paul's going to lay this out. Here's how you and I are to be different from the world around us. He's going to give us four commands, instructions, four imperatives that we see that are so direct and clear. And there is this beautiful ebb and flow in them. And I think we're going to see that as we walk through it. It is, it is incredibly beautiful to take them all together. So we're going to take them individually, but then we're going to put them all together, and they're going to work in concert together as we, as we finish this, this text. So let's take the first one. We see that the first command Paul gives us, the man, the woman of God, the first thing is flee. Run. Get out of here. Paul says, as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Run from these things. And, and what are those things? Well, it goes back to the contrast. In other words, from false teaching and false teachers, run, flee. From uh, looking back here, living for a different doctrine, run. 
uh, flee from those things, the temptation to go away from the sound teachings of Jesus, run from that, flee from that. Unhealthy cravings for division, run from that, flee from that, from the relentless pursuit of money above all else, run from that, flee from that. Paul says, you, O man of God, run. And I don't want us to miss this. You cannot flee from something if you are neutral on it. If you're undecided or unwilling, you can't flee. In fact, for these first two commands, I want to give us an, uh, an analogy that I think will help us put together this ebb and flow a little bit. I want you to think about a river. Um, and I want you to think about where there is a current pushing in that river, going one direction, moving us one way, right? Just like any river, what happens when you stand in it and you're neutral? You're gonna go the way of the river. You're going to be pushed. You're gonna go with the flow. That's what happens when you're passive. That's how it works. That's how river currents work. You go with the flow. In the same way, that's how our culture works. When you are passive... When you are neutral, when you do nothing, you go with the flow. You're in a current, and it moves, and it's powerful, and it's relentless in one direction. And fleeing from that is going to take an intentional decision to say, no, stand up, turn against that, that flow, to go the other direction. We see um, Paul in Romans 12 well-known text, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, accept, wholly acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And then he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I love this language, that by the testing you may discern that is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So in our world, in our culture, just like it was for Paul and, and Timothy in the early church and um, Fleeing from the cultural current will not accidentally happen. You're not going to just stumble into that one. You're in a current. You don't accidentally go the other way. That does not happen. Why? Because the world, the culture is forming you. I could say deforming you. It's shaping you, or I could say misshaping you. That's what culture is doing. And Paul here is saying, don't be conformed by it. Or another way to say it is run, flee, flee. Because our call is to not be conformed. So run, flee. But that's not all, because to run away from the world is not good enough. And here's what I mean. Um, if you think about it, there are many people throughout history who have pushed against the current and have gone the other way from the world. Crazy people have done this. Every cult has done that. Every crazy movement that has ever happened has gone the other way. Um, here's the thing. It's not good enough to just flee from the world. It's not good enough to just run for the hills, reject the world. We need to know where we're going and we need to have a clear path. And so, that's why the call here is not only to flee, the second imperative we see in our verse is to then pursue. So if you look, if you think back at Romans 12, it's don't be conformed to this world, that's flee, but be transformed. There's the pursue. 
are calls to be transformed. It's to flee from those things in order that you may pursue those things. And again, this is not neutral or, it, or passive. It is active. If you think about it, um, can you passively pursue someone? Not if you're very good at it, right? Pursuing is, by its definition, an active endeavor. It's something you, you do. It's, it's, it's intentional. And, and Paul is calling us here not to just go against the flow of the current of culture, which is good, but to get up and to pursue a different path altogether, to pursue it. To run, not aimlessly away from the culture, but a targeted in order to pursue this. And what is he calling us to pursue? In the verse, there is six things that he calls to pursue. We're just going to take them in order quickly. Number one, he calls us to pursue righteousness. I was thinking about this word. Um, it's a big fancy you know, Christian word that you probably do not use unless you're in here or reading your Bible. Or doing some study. It's not a word. It's such a churchy word. And, and when we think about it, we, we, since we probably don't use it, um, we might have a vague understanding of what Paul is actually telling us to pursue here. And so as we, as we look at this, righteousness as it's used in our text means upright. It means um, virtuous, upright, upstanding. It's living your life without hidden dark corners or, heart, or dark motives. It's living your life with upright values, character, just, virtue. Ultimately, it's living your life in alignment with the word of Christ. That is righteousness. The reason I say this is because I think there needs to be a distinction made here. It's really important that we, that we do. Um, because sometimes when we think about righteousness, we think about our standing before God. We've been made right before God. Praise God for that. But hear me, when Paul uses this word here, he's not talking about that. He's not telling you to pursue your own righteousness before God. That is a losing battle, church. You cannot ever do that. This is not talking about your position before the Lord as far as your salvation. In, the, in Scripture, it says that your righteousness on your best day is like a filthy set of rags. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not calling us to pursue that because you're a sinner. You've, been, you've not been saved by your own righteousness. You've been saved by the righteousness of Jesus that was now imputed to you. You have the righteousness of Christ, not your own. It's alien righteousness given to you. So Paul's not calling us here to pursue that kind of righteousness, to try to earn our own salvation. Um, no, he's calling those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone for us to now walk in the light, to follow what Christ has set before us. That's what he's calling us to do. That's how we pursue righteousness. It's walking in obedience to Christ. In other words, it's not that you're saved by your good works, it's you are saved to your good works. There's a huge distinction between these two. And so when you see, pursue righteousness, know that God, God's word is calling you to follow after the heart and commands of Jesus in this. Pursue 
righteousness. Not only know it, but live in it, walk in it. That's what it means to pursue. So our call is to flee from the world in order to pursue righteousness. Then he adds, godliness. Um, This is a call to model ourselves after Jesus, to not after the culture, but after Jesus, to um, look like Jesus. Obviously, this is not going to mean that you will be perfect at this. We just talked about that. Um, You're not going to be able to attain perfection and look just like Jesus. No, you know you. That's not possible. But our call is to pursue Christ likeness. That's what being godly means. Um, there's, a, there's a scene in scripture that I think encapsulates this really well. And it's actually in the early church. When you think back at Acts, do you know when the word Christian, the term Christian was used first? It was back in the early church in uh, the church in Antioch. And guess what? It was not supposed to be a compliment. It was kind of a backhanded you know, um, derogatory term. It says this in, in Acts 11. Uh, they brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church, taught a great many people. And, and what I love here is, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christian. What does that mean? Well, it means that the church was fleeing the ways of the world around them. They were pursuing the righteousness and godliness of Christ in such a way that the world around them looked at them and said, what do we call these people? Let's just call them little Jesuses. Like, that's so incredible. They're just little Jesuses, little Christians. Christians, that's it. We'll call them that. That's how it started. It's because the church were little Christ replicas godliness, pursuing godliness in the eyes of the world around us. So our call, flee from the current of the world in order that we may pursue righteousness and godliness and then faith. Number three is faith. Faith is the essence of our relationship with our God. Faith is everything. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen, Hebrews 11. Um, faith is our trust in God, our trust in Christ. It's, it's, it's our walk with him. And we're called to pursue faith. The faith once for all delivered to the saints, we're called to pursue it. Um, we're called to pursue the truth of God in Christ and, and pursue faith. And what a stark contrast that is to the world around us. But this is our pursuit. We flee from the current of the world so that we can pursue righteousness, godliness, faith. Number four, love. The love, it's our love for God that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, and love our neighbor. Love others, love our neighbor as ourselves. Love. Whereas the current of our world, by the way, is all about love. It's just all about self-love. And, and Paul here is saying, but as for you, uh-uh. Pursue. Pursue the mind of Jesus who gave himself for you, loved you to the cross. Selfless love. Be like him. Die to yourselves for your love of God and love for neighbor. Pursue love. Pursue love. How do we stand up from the world's relentless call to self-love? Well, we stand up and we pursue the love of Jesus. 
that is selfless and enduring. And let's talk about that endurance. The next one, the next thing he calls us to is the pursuit of steadfastness. So don't pursue the current of the world. Instead, pursue righteousness, godliness, pursue faith, pursue love, and next, pursue steadfastness. This is perseverance. This is never failing, enduring. Okay, think back to the river analogy. What happens in a river, you're standing there, and you decide, I'm not going to go the way of the current, and I'm going to make this one-time decision, I'm done. What happens if you then do not endure? You are not steadfast. What happens over time? Well, what happens is that pressure, that current will just take you away. Christianity, the, your walk with Jesus, I'll put it like this. Scripture says it's a day-to-day walk of dying to yourself and following him. We like to think sometimes that Christianity is a one-time decision kind of thing where we just say, yes, I'm good. I'll see you in heaven, Jesus. The problem is, is that the Bible does not give you that option for your life as a follower of Jesus. Your salvation, yes, is secure in the work of Jesus, but you have to wrestle with the fact that this word now then calls you to follow daily, to endure, just like standing in a river that constantly makes you want to go the other way. Steadfastness means that we keep our eyes on Jesus. Yes, we may trip and the river may drive us back from time to time, but steadfastness means that we keep our eyes on Jesus and from the fleeing current of the culture daily and that we pursue Jesus daily. That's steadfastness. And I want to remind us one thing before I go to the next one. Um, Lamentations 3, 22 through 23. I won't put it up here, but um, I have to say it. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Okay, we know that even when you are not steadfast, he is. He is. Christ is sure. Christ is steadfast. And with that in mind now, we get to every day, because of the steadfast love of Jesus, we get to flee the things of this world. And we get to pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness. And then lastly is gentleness. Um, gentleness, honestly, is probably my favorite one of these. I don't know if I'm allowed to have a favorite one of these words. Gentleness is I, my favorite word of, these, of this list of six because it's so unexpected. I guess it shouldn't be, but it, but it kind of is. When I think about this, I think about all of the other things that Paul could have said here. You know, strength or, you know, boldness, fearlessness, courage. Like, I think of so many more, like, yeah, things that he could say here. But then he drops gentleness. And it's amazing to me because as I think about how weird this term is in this list of six, it stops becoming weird because I think about the life of Jesus, who was just, was gentle and lowly in heart, right? We think of Jesus who pushed against all of the forces of evil and darkness and never once lost his gentleness in doing it. How incredible is that? 
How incredible is that? Church, our calling is to flee and to pursue, but to never lose our gentleness. Like, how Christ-like is that? What a reminder for us. We see in the Gospels in the New Testament this call for us to be bold and strong and courageous, yes. You know, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul knew how to throw it down, okay? Paul knew that. And yet we're also called to be just relentlessly gentle, to walk with gentleness just as Christ walked. And do not forget that. So if we think back, we have flee from the current of this world, the things of this world, in order that you may pursue, that you may pursue righteousness and godliness, faith and love, steadfastness, and gentleness. There are two sides of the same coin, by the way. And I'll say this again before we move to the next one. You can't just flee the world, but we also need to pursue. We need to flee so that we can pursue. But also, on the other side, we can't pursue if we're not willing to flee. These are two sides of the same coin, and you've been given both commands. And he's not done. I told you, this text is heavy hitting. Um, There's another ebb and flow command that we're going to see. Let's look at verse 12. Fight the good fight, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. It's verse 12. Okay, we see the first two commands that Paul gives us. Um, I use this analogy of a current in a river. I'm gonna switch that on us and we're gonna now use the imagery for these next two of a battlefield. Um, And if you think about a battlefield, about warfare, there are times in a battle when we advance and we fight and we drive and we attack. And at the same time, there are times in a battle when you hold the line. You don't move. You hold. You defend. This is the exact imagery Paul is giving here in verse 12. In verse 11, he calls us to flee and to pursue. Next, he calls us to fight. Fight the good fight of the faith. Fight, advance, push. This is warfare language. And it's not the first time Paul has used this either. Um, I love this. As I was looking at this this week, Paul is actually repeating almost word for word what he's already told us. Think back. Um, I know you have 1 Timothy memorized by this point, but if you think back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, right off the bat, he starts off, this charge I entrust you. I give you, Timothy, my child, here's the charge, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. That sounds really familiar. Wage the good warfare, skip some chapters, fight the good fight. He's saying the same thing with the same warfare language. He's repeating himself. And just to be clear, it's the good fight of the faith. Of the faith. And so it's not, you know, you're just really good at fighting for your opinions or preferences or for power or position or notoriety, whatever you fight for, or just because you like fighting. It's not that. It's fighting the good fight of the faith. For the faith. Think of a... um, a battlefield, we're called to, in this call, we're called to push forward, to drive forward. Um, here's the thing, though. In the first analogy I gave of a river, that wasn't actually real. 
That was an analogy to help us understand, right? The second analogy of a battle, this one is real. I'm actually not using an analogy here. I'm just telling you reality here. You are in a battle. So we've shifted here. We're talking about real here. But here's the thing. I think we can so easily forget that we are in a battle. That we're in a fight or in warfare at all. And when we read the language of texts that call us to like gird up, right? And get to war. Like we read that and we're like, what? Let's just, let's just love each other and stuff. And, and, and here's the thing. We need to realize that we are in fact in a battle. A very real one with a real enemy and a real war that is really going on. Let me point to a couple verses very quick. Ephesians, Paul's words, to the same church, by the way. The church in Ephesus, he says, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. This is not for decoration. Like a good war armor looks cool and stuff, but that's not why he's telling you to put it on. This is not decorative. He says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, the real enemy in a real battle. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers um, over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We have a real enemy in a real battle, and your call is to put on real armor. Paul will say it again, one more text in 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh, meaning we have flesh, we are not waging war against the flesh. For the weapons of our war are not of the flesh. But we have divine power to destroy strongholds. So there is a battle that you are really in. You might not really be standing in a river, but you really are in a battle. And you have a part to play. In other words, this battle is not just for the specialized Christians, the ones who get paid to be Christians, to the pastors, the whatever. It's not, no. This is a call for all of us to be engaged. You have a part to play. The reality is that the battlefield, any battlefield is a dangerous place. But it is so much more dangerous for soldiers who are completely unaware and unarmed and unarmored strolling onto the battlefield just trying to entertain themselves and kicking a ball around or something. It's really dangerous for them. My fear is that because we forget that we're in a battle, sometimes that's exactly what we do. Unaware, unarmed. Paul says, put on the full armor of God and know that you're in a fight and now fight the good fight. So here's my question. I'm going to really zoom in on this one. How do you, how are you supposed to fight? If you're called to fight, how, how do you fight? I want to bring up two things. You could say that I'm really saying three things, but you're wrong. I'm really saying two things. Um, first thing is this, we fight through prayer. And what I mean by this is prayer is not the preparation for the battle. Something you do to make sure you get your ducks in a row for all the real work that's coming. no. Prayer is the battle. Prayer is the battle. We fight a spiritual battle, and therefore we fight with spiritual means. Prayer is the fight. If you think back to the verse I showed, we walk 
um, we walk in the flesh, but we're not waging war with the flesh. We, our weapons of warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. That's prayer language. In other words, the weapon in this battle is prayer. It is shocking yet how little we pray as the contemporary church. Why is that? It's like we've forgotten we're in a battle. It's like we've forgotten we have a real spiritual battle going on with a real spiritual enemy who really wants to hurt you. It's like we forget that. And it's like, again, going back to that analogy, we're running around like unarmed and unaware soldiers just entertaining ourselves on an active battlefield, which is insane. This is how we can often live. And so we, we fight first through prayer. First and foremost, listen, if you are not praying, you are not fighting. Don't fool yourself. If you are not praying, you are not fighting. If you're not praying, you're not fighting the good fight, waging the good warfare, as he says in this text. So first, we fight through prayer. Second, we fight through proclamation. Proclamation of the gospel. Um, the retelling and the telling and the, the retelling and the continual retelling of the gospel. First to yourself, meaning that you have rhythms in your life that daily remind you of the gospel. That you have rhythms in your life that retell you the gospel again and again and again. That you saturate yourself with the gospel. That we proclaim the gospel to ourselves and then also that we proclaim the gospel to others. That you have rhythms in your life of retelling. You tell, you share the good news of Jesus and the hope that we have that let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Say so. This is how we fight. We fight through prayer, we fight through proclamation, we fight the good fight, church, through those things. These are the way we fight. And then Paul follows that command. He says, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life, which is yours, which you were called, and about which you made a good, the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So the next command, we have fight, and now the second command in this verse is Hold. Hold. And our last command, um, it, was, it was thinking of warfare and it was about fighting. Well, um, Paul is, like I said, he was repeating something he already said in 1 Timothy 1. It's like he's saying the same thing. Guess what? He did it again here. Going back, 1 Timothy 1. Let's do this again. I'll put it up here again. This I charge and trust you, Timothy, my child. Prophecies previously made about you that by them you may wage the good warfare. We read that, but then he continues. Verse 19, what does he say right after? Holding faith and a good conscience. There's a call to fight and a call to hold. A call to fight, the good fight, and a call to hold the faith. So our text says fight the good fight and then take hold Hold fast. In, a, in this battlefield, we are called to hold the line. We're called to hold the line, not give up ground, not to give up the foundation of our faith. This goes back to what we talked about a couple weeks ago. When we talked about the faith once for all delivered to the saints, that your call is to contend for it. We hold it. We contend. And this isn't optional. I gotta just, just in case, 
you're wondering, <laughs> this is not optional. Um, we are bound to this. We confess this. In other words, you're not left to figure out what is right for you to believe. You were given this, and we are bound to this. We hold this. This is why we sing and say creeds like, we believe in God the Father. We believe in Christ the Son. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. Why do we sing that? Because it's not optional for us to believe that. It is who we are. It is our foundation. And Paul says, hold. Don't retreat on that. Cling. Hold to this. Do not move an inch on this. And then I want to pull out that last line too that says, in the presence of many witnesses. And I love this because you're, this is, our confession and our faith and our walk with Jesus, I think as uh, Christians in 2023 America, we think it's deeply you know, personal. This is my personal relationship with Jesus. Okay, praise God that it is very personal, but personal and private are not the same thing. The Bible absolutely says that your walk with Jesus is personal. It never says it's private. Ever. You don't hold alone. You hold with your brothers and your sisters. And that's why we're making proclamations in the presence of many witnesses. We're going to celebrate baptisms in a couple week, weeks. And I love baptisms because it is this public proclamation done in the presence of many witnesses. Oh, church, we hold together. We can't retreat. This is not optional. In a battlefield, we hold our ground we cannot retreat. We pursue righteousness, godliness, faith. We walk in love and steadfastness and gentleness, but all the time we do that, we hold. We hold our ground. Um, I said earlier, um, you can't fight the good fight if you're not praying. I will also add to that, you cannot and, and I also said you can't fight the good fight if you're not proclaiming the gospel. But I want to add to this. You can also not fight the good fight if you have given up your ground. If you are no longer holding, you have nothing to stand on in this fight. We must hold together and, and help each other hold. And so Paul gives us four imperatives, and I want to bring them out and Smush them together for us, okay? Imperative number one is flee, that we would flee from the pull of this world and that we would not be conformed to this world, but we would run, flee, right? Number two, that we would pursue, flee, pursue. We would pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, that we would actively go the other way. We would pursue. Number three, that we would fight, that we would fight the good fight, and that we would understand or realize the fact that we are actually in a fight. And that the way that we fight this fight is through prayer and through proclamation of the gospel. That we would fight. And lastly, that we would hold. Hold to our faith. Meaning that as we're fleeing from the world, we're holding to this. As we're pursuing Jesus, we're holding to this. As we're fighting, we're holding to this. We hold, we cling. Um, let me ask you, how are you doing in those today? Are you fleeing? 
Are you actively pushing against the pressure of this world to conform you? Because it is. And if you think, no, I'm not being conformed, it's because you're so indoctrinated and you're just floating down the river, okay? There is a river current. Are you fleeing? And how are you fleeing? Um, Do you make perfect sense to your lost neighbors? Do you look just like them? Value what they value? Spend your money the way they spend their money? Just fill in the blank. Do you make your decisions just like them? That's not fleeing. I don't want you to be weirdos. Like, but you kind of have to be in some ways. Be weirdos in the right ways. I I don't want to get derailed in that. Um, Are you embracing the world or are you fleeing from it? And are you pursuing, I mean actively pursuing, not just hoping that accidentally I will stumble into Christ-likeness. How does that work? It doesn't. I think too many times we think we're gonna accidentally and unintentionally just fumble and stumble our way to Christ-likeness. And although the Spirit is at work in us, doing his work in our hearts, he is. We have to understand that we are also called to actively pursue obedience in Christ. We're active in this, not passive, we're active. So are you pursuing this in in a good way to really distinguish if you are pursuing is let me ask you this, how are you pursuing? Because if you can't have a how, can't answer that, you're probably not. How are you pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness? How are you doing that? We need to know how we're pursuing. And then let's get to that third one. Are you fighting? Are you First of all, are you aware that there's a fight going on? Step number one, awareness of it. But then step number two, are you fighting the good fight? Are you engaged in this? Let me cut directly to this. Are you praying? How is your prayer life? Do you pray? How would you describe your prayer life? And I'm not asking that to shame you. I'm not. Don't let shame creep in. Shame's not of God on this. It's to say you are in a battle and prayer is not the preparation for that battle. Prayer is the battle. So are you praying? Are you fighting? And are you proclaiming? I mean, are you proclaiming, reminding yourself of the gospel every day? And are you proclaiming the gospel to others? Sharing the hope that you have? Are you fighting? And then lastly, what about holding? Are you holding? Holding to this, clinging to this without Addition, subtraction, or modification? Are you holding? Or are you going around saying, you know, did God actually mean that though when he wrote that? I know the Bible says this, but this is 2023. I think, you know, we'll see. Listen, are you holding? Are you holding? Um, And listen, I want to end with this. This is so critical for our church, for the church. Uh, So critical that I want us to end by imagining two things. First, number one, I want you to imagine with me, and this one was painful for me to do. I want you to imagine with me a church that does not do these things. 
A church that does not flee. Instead, a church that is worldly, looks just like the world around them. A church that does not pursue, maybe because they don't want to offend or they're just lazy or passive and unintentional in their walk with Jesus. They don't flee and they don't pursue. Imagine with me a church that does not fight, that does not pray. Maybe it's because they think they're self-sufficient and they can do it. A church that does not proclaim the gospel, who keeps everything private, not wanting to hurt or harm or offend anyone. Keep it safe, keep it motivational, keep it encouraging. No fight. Imagine a church that does not hold. But instead, takes this, sacrifices this on the altar of public opinion or relevance or being modern. Imagine a church that does not flee, does not pursue, does not fight, and does not hold. That church would not stand for very long. What I just described is a dying church. A church that is on the path to complete destruction. It may seem fun, and it may seem to grow for a season. But its roots wither because there are no lasting roots. There's no fight. There's no hold. There's no fleeing. There's no pursuing. And throughout history, we have seen this time and time and time again. Even in our current moment, we're seeing this time and time and time again. Imagining a church like this is absolutely painful. And um, it breaks my heart. And yet I've seen it happen far too many times in my life and in my ministry. I've seen this happen far too many times. And what I was reminded in this text and the reason I said it's daunting is because I realized what's truly at stake here. These imperatives aren't optional. They're essential and we're not gonna be perfect at them. You see these and you might... Realize you're not perfect in them and look around. None of us are. We're not perfect in them. At times, we're not going to flee as we should. We're not going to pursue or fight as we should. At times, we're going to be tempted to release our hold in ways we shouldn't. But even in that moment, we're called to confess our sin, repent, and know that he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us, and we know the grace of Jesus. So we're not going to be perfect in this. And even in that, he's good and his grace is good. And so we come back to this, though, as our marching orders, as our true north. This is what we pursue. On the other side, I want you to imagine with me another church. Imagine with me a church, a group of people, brothers and sisters, who do those things together. A church who flees. A church who pursues. A church who fights church who holds. Jesus says in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against a church who flees and pursues and fights and holds. And so my encouragement 
this morning, Stone Oak Bible Church, is let's flee. Let's pursue. Let's fight through prayer and proclamation. And my goodness, let's hold for the glory of God.